When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Sarah Snyder, who is the author of DIY Solo Retreats, a handbook for creating your space, setting an intention, and getting the self-care you deserve. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you very much, Christina. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about how to make a DIY solo retreat. I know that um, it's going to be invaluable for listeners to learn about this. And as we get into the episode, they'll see all the ways this can apply to their current um, academic dilemmas. But before we jump into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. So I have been writing for probably about 35 years now, and I have a whole host of topics that I write about. I I don't tend to stick with one topic because I have such a tremendous um, interest in everything. I'm one of these people that just loves to learn. And I particularly love to learn about human nature and also our natural world. So uh, those are kind of my passions, learning about human nature and writing about them from the standpoint of how we can be better people. And also just nature and conservation, because that's sort of my, um, that's my academic background as well. And um, I also have uh, this writing that I do on the side. I'm now published the book that we're talking about today is my fourth book. And I also have a, in inverted quotes, real life where I have a full-time job. I work for a company as, as a writer and a, a communicator. So this, this writing that I do on the side is very much a passion that I have to share with the world what I have learned. And so you can learn more about me through my books. And so that leads to my next question, and particularly for our audience, we're always curious about your own path through higher ed. Can you tell us about back when you were a student and uh, what got you from point A to B? Sure. So I started out my post college or uh, I'm sorry, my post high school life at the University of Montana. 
and I have three degrees from that university. I was a double major in my undergraduate, so I have two Bachelor of Science degrees. Um, one is in forestry and one is in wildlife biology. So that's where the conservation uh, passion comes from. And then after a few years of working in the field, I went back to get my master's degree in journalism and I wrote about conservation. And I did, uh, I was a technical science writer for a long time for uh, mostly government agencies and some private industry as well. And I, you know, I loved my college years, but when I think about the most memorable, loved moments of my life, it is college, the time I spent both as an undergraduate and a graduate student. Um, again, I love to learn. And so being in that learning environment with a lot of other people who are also there for the same pur purpose um, and just absorbing as much as I could just really made me happy, but it also stressed me out. And so at those moments where I realized I really needed to take a break, that's kind of when I discovered this whole concept of going on retreats. And I had actually done retreats as a child. I, I was brought up in a family that did retreats that were based uh, from our church. And we'd go away on, on, on you know, family retreats with the church. So I, I, I realized I had been doing retreats all my life, really. But when I was in college, um, everybody knows how intense it is to study. And especially as a double major, I had, I actually started out with three majors and two minors. And then after I got into retreating during those college years, I realized maybe I should uh, take this down a notch. So I took it down a little bit to two undergraduate degrees. Um, so two majors and one minor. Um, but it was still, you know, you needed to get time away for yourself. And that's when I discovered the benefits of retreating. And they also became important to me in figuring out what I wanted to do with my life between when I graduated as an undergraduate and being able to go on to graduate school. Retreating helped me figure out what I wanted to do in graduate school to get my master of arts, uh, which is like, I believe I said was in journalism. So this became a lifestyle practice for you. It sounds like by the time you were in your teens and late teens at college, you were like, I've got to get away. I've got to figure out a life balance system. Were you, were you on formal uh, retreats that were based on getting assignments done or were you retreating, um, for the self-care aspect? Definitely for the self-care aspect, but in retrospect, if I had known then what I know now, I would have definitely tried to use my retreat time to help me through some of the more difficult aspects of college life, not just the academia part of studying and uh, being productive and and maybe helping to improve my uh, memory retention and understand these difficult science concepts that I was studying uh, because retreating can definitely help with that. So I had done it from a self-care aspect and then, you know, it was years later that I, that I thought, wow, if I ever go back to college again, which I might go back and get another degree at some point in my life, uh, I'm going to have these skills now that can also benefit me in getting myself through um, studying. 
And so that leads to my next question is what inspired you to write this book? My goal with my writing is to teach other people what I have learned the hard way in hopes that others can learn from me so that they don't have to do things the hard way. Uh, I realize we're all on our own path and sometimes we choose the hard way and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we can learn from that. Uh, But I also feel like uh, again, I, not only do I love to learn things, I love to absorb knowledge, but I also love to pass it on. And if I can be of any use to anybody, uh, I want to pass on my knowledge. So I had learned a lot about retreating over the years by not only going on organized retreats that other people had organized and that I had to pay for, but also creating my own retreat at home. And so that became the impetus for this book. And then when we were struck with this global pandemic, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is perfect because now more than ever, we need to learn how to cope with what life is throwing us. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to get self-care we need. And here is a quick and easy way to get the self-care we need without having to travel because travel is, um, you know, some, at times it's impossible. Like right now we're experiencing that travel is, is really difficult and it's also expensive. And here's a way you can get the self-care you need, creating your own retreat with tips and tricks that I've included in this book that I have used myself, that I've developed over the years, that you can do right at home without having to leave your home or without having to leave at least, uh, you know, a five mile, 10 mile radius of your home. And it also um, eliminates the need for gathering, which is kind of a complicated thing for people to navigate right now. Not everyone has the same comfort level and the same protocols that they want to use if they do gather. And so if you can do your retreat at home, the most you might do is gather virtually. Yes. And you can, you can still gather with people online or even in person, you know, if you have safe groups and you follow protocols that that keep everybody safe from, um, you know, from pandemics. But this is also a really great technique um, for people who are introverts, because let's face it, how many introverts are motivated to go away on a retreat, and especially one that involves bearing your soul, that can involve bearing your soul, and sometimes that's the point, Um And, you know, for people like that, and I have to admit, I'm kind of like a closet introvert. I'm actually very extroverted on one side of my personality, but another side is like, there is no way in heck I am going to share my deepest, darkest personal experiences and, and, you know, machinations that are going on behind the scenes with other people. Yet at the same time, I really need a way to process that information and the solo retreating can help do that. I I feel you on the introvert thing. There's a retreat that I like to go on and it's on hold for a bit. Um, But the retreat leader rents this really large cabin. Uh, So it has multiple, multiple bedrooms and you sign up for, you literally get to pick the bedroom that you want. There's a chart 
and most of them are shared rooms. And I'm like, no, that's a bridge too far. I'm going to be in the Uh house with all of you the whole time. We're going to be on the same retreat schedule. We're going to eat all our meals together. Um, I I need some space where I go shut the door and it's just me. Um, just because as an introvert, um, we recharge alone. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Some people are energized by other people and some people are energized by being alone. And I think there's really a little bit of all of all of that, both of that and everybody. But some people, you know, we all fall along the scale at different um, places along that scale. But I can definitely, there are times when I can identify with, I am so energized by being with people. I love people. I love to be around people. I love, you know, dinner parties and gatherings and, you know, social events, even if it's just sitting around chatting over a cup of tea. I absolutely love that. And there are other times when I just want to go in the, go in a room, shut the door and close the world out. But I still need some way to process what's going on for me. If it's not with others, I need to be able to do it myself. And how do I do that? And most people don't know. So this book gives you some ideas for how to create a retreat on your own. You know, what What do I retreat about? What does retreating even mean? And it's about resetting and recharging your life. And you can retreat for any purpose at all. There is no limit to what you can retreat, you know, quote unquote, about. You can retreat for spiritual reasons, for personal reasons, for just getting some quiet time. If you live in a chaotic environment, Especially, you know, when I was a student, uh, I often lived with other people. You have roommates and they're doing their thing and you're doing your thing and it can get very chaotic. Um, And I also worked part time when I was a student. So, um, you know, you can see why I needed some of this quiet time uh, to myself to just be able to um, pursue my studies in a more grounded, focused way than if I did not give myself some space to just get away and and reset and recharge. We talk sometimes on this channel about um, the hidden curriculum, the, the skills that you need that no one tells you that you need, the tools that you need that no one tells you that you need. Um, and I know when I was in grad school, I started instinctively taking myself on retreats. I didn't have pushback from the professors, but I did from some of the students in my cohort. There was a sense that I was going on a vacation, that I was slacking off, um, kind of remarks like, well, it must be nice to have that kind of time. And I found that when I went on a retreat, whether it was for a few days or longer, when I came back, I was far better able to do what I was at grad school for in the first place. And it turns out that our brains are designed for that. They're designed for some off time. And if you don't give your brain the off time, you'll just get sluggish. You'll make more mistakes. You'll you'll work, you know, not at your optimal ability. You'll lose some of your creative thinking and your moods will suffer and your sleep. And it just kind of becomes a bunch of dominoes that maybe don't fall over, but they're pretty wobbly. Um, can you talk about how becoming intentional about retreat time can actually make us better at what we're doing? And so it's essential to create that time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. We need downtime and we need downtime every single day. So it's not just about retreating 
for a few hours a month or a f- you know a few hours every few weeks or whatever it is um and and by the way you can retreat as as frequently as you want and in my book i talk about i differentiate between uh, a a solo DIY solo retreat, which I define as a minimum two hour, solid two hour time, which I call me time, which the ME can stand for mine exclusively. Um, so there's that. And there's also what I call your daily booster, which is just taking as little as 10 minutes a day to shut down all the noise that you've dealt with on the outside. And even if you do nothing but listen to yourself breathe for 10 minutes, which by the way, sounds like it might be easy, but it's really hard. So if you find that it's difficult to get 10 minutes of quiet time, give yourself one minute of quiet time. Start with one minute and work up to 10 minutes, but it is essential. And there there are volumes of evidence-based studies that show the benefits of this type of downtime. It's It boosts your um, immune system. It releases endorphins. It reduces your blood pressure, you know, lowers your blood pressure. It makes you calmer. Any, oh, there are just a host of physical benefits that are proved by scientific studies that this downtime is not only beneficial for you physically, because it's all tied in, right? Your, your physical, your emotional body, your mental, you know, your brain, it's all tied in spiritual. If you're a spiritual person, everything is connected. So if you feed in a positive way, one of those things, if you positively feed your emotions, if you positively feed your physical body, if you positively feed your thought processes, um, you will benefit your entire system. And I like you had mentioned um, about how some of your cohorts thought that retreating was like a vacation. And I like to say that um, in a sense, retreating is like a vacation for, you know, your mind and your body and your spirit. But really vacations, a true vacation is designed to take you away from something. So away from your studies, away from work, away from the chaos of everyday life. Um, But the purpose of retreating ultimately is to move you toward something. And that something that we're reaching for is wholeness. And when you are a whole person and when you practice this wholeness and give your body what it needs, which is this wholeness, it, it, then the world becomes a better place. It's not just you, it's your community, it's the people that you interact with, and it's the larger world and the planet. And what it doesn't get any better than that. And it's so simple to do. You talked about your early experiences of retreatings were going on retreats. And so, and mine were as well. And so, that means the organizer of the retreat is sort of setting the intention and you're signing yourself up and saying, okay, I'll go along with that intention. When we're doing the DIY solo retreats, you invite us to take time and figure out what our intention is for the retreat. Can you talk about that very important intention setting? That's really the pre-step to get ready. 
Yeah. So um, in order to set an intention for your retreat, you really have to have a clear understanding of what you want to achieve, right? It's like writing, it's like writing um, a paper for a class. You have to know, you know, what's the subject, what's the topic and who's the audience? Well, in this case, you are the audience for your retreat, but what do you want to get out of it? And so there are, um, I also talk about, this is, this is also related, but kind of tangential. Um, there are really four basic broad retreat categories um, and, and it fits into your intention. So you can have one of your retreat categories is just to get that me time, you know, that reset, recharge me time. One is to set an intention for uh, spiritual or personal growth. One is to just go uh, contribute to the world. So you can work or volunteer for a cause. And, and I have done all of these things. And the fourth category I like to define is it's uh, more active in terms of um, travel. So for example, you would go on a purposeful travel retreat. You might want to learn how to speak Italian. So you go and spend you know, two months in Italy in an Italian immersion course. That's a type of retreat, right? Because you are feeding your soul. If this is something you wanted to always learn Italian, this is a way you're feeding your soul. So um, when you once you figure out kind of the broader category of what you want to achieve, whether it's getting some that personal time or spiritual growth or working through an issue. And I, and that's, that's related to personal growth too. Um, Then you can start to figure out what it is. Okay. So say I want to, to um, have um, find peace in my life. Maybe my world is really chaotic and I, my intention is to find peace in my life. Well, how do you know you want to do that there? I do in the book lay out five easy steps to setting your intention. And it basically involves sitting down, taking some time to sit down and maybe journal about what it is you want to achieve. Or you can, you can talk into um, a voice recorder about what you want to reach, achieve, but you want to really spend some time and it doesn't take more than, sometimes you know in like five minutes what you want to do. Other times it might take you 30 minutes to think about it, but it's not what I'm taking. When I say take some time, I don't mean a, a long period of time, you know, say up to 30 minutes, sitting quietly, getting quiet and figuring out, okay, what is it that I want to achieve? What's kind of my primary um, goal? If, if there's, um, like I said, if you want to find peace in your life or if you're faced with a tough decision and you don't know, should I open door one or door two or door three? I don't know how to choose. So I just need to, um, maybe I need to go and retreat about that. And it's not about figuring out how to choose, but it's about figuring out it's about getting that quiet time to look at all my options and the pros and cons. Um, so you really need to spend the time, and again, it's like maybe 30 minutes at the most, of figuring out what you want to achieve. And then when you have that, write an intention statement. 
So for example, I'll go to my finding peace in, in my life intention. If that's what I want to achieve, maybe the ultimate outcome of my solo retreat is that my life becomes more calm and relaxed and that I find ways to more calmly deal with life when it throws me curveballs, which life does to all of us. So my intention might be, and I'm, I'm going to read uh, from my book now. So the intention for this might be that you are going to use that retreat time to practice some sip, simple techniques that allow you to quickly calm your mind when you're under stress or to be able to go into a quiet, calm state of mind for at least 30 minutes, you know, during your retreat. So that might be intention, but it has to be focused. And once we've set our focused intention and we, we know what we want to do, you also caution us to let go of the outcome. So let's say we've figured out that we've got two hours next weekend on Saturday to work on a writing project. And that is what our retreat time is for. You've cautioned us to know what the retreat time is for, but not what the outcome is going to be. Can you talk about the difference between having an intention and having a set outcome? Yeah. So your intention is, it's kind of paradoxical, but it's both broad and specific. So if we'll use your example of wanting to achieve some writing. So maybe your intention is to write, say, 2,000 words um, in, a, in a weekend or whatever the designated time space is that you're going to set aside for this retreat. You want to you write 2,000 words of whatever it is you're, you're working on. That's your intention. And that's a good intention and stick with it. But maybe you don't quite achieve 2,000 words. Maybe you only write 1,500 or maybe you only write 1,000. But what, what I hope people will do is to rather than punish yourself, gosh darn it, I didn't get my 2,000 words done and I really wanted to, is to focus on what you did achieve and give yourself credit for what you did achieve, which is that 1,000 words, that 1,500 words. And maybe those are even better words than uh, maybe they're um, much more focused words and they're better written than if you had written 2,000 words. So 2,000 words could be your goal. But in a broader sense, using some other examples of letting go of the outcome, maybe you want to, we'll go back to the, I want to invite peace in my life. And maybe the outcome is I want to be a calmer person. My intention is to be calm, more calm. And you go into your retreat and you want to meditate for, say, 30 minutes but you, you're having a really hard time shutting off your mind for 30 minutes. And it is hard, especially if you're not used to doing that, because our minds just go. We call it the monkey mind, and it just will take off. If you give it an inch, it'll run 20 miles. So maybe your intention is, well, I want to get some good quality meditation time in for 30 minutes during this two-hour retreat space, and then I want to reflect on that or whatever. But maybe that 30 minutes that you'd hope to get, you've just had this monkey mind, and you rather than getting upset that you weren't able to achieve that 30 minutes, give yourself credit that you did it for 10 
or you did it for five. Because again, this is hard. And if you beat yourself up for what you didn't achieve during your retreat, you're not going to go want to go retreat again. You're just going to want to say, you know, to heck with this. I, I didn't achieve what I set out to do. This retreating thing doesn't work. Give it a chance and give yourself a chance. So let go of the outcome. Another example of letting go of the outcome is, um, baby, um, I want to, I'll use an example from my own life. Um, I want to have my, you know, one of my books be in, be on the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, I can shoot for that and I can try to do everything in my power to make that happen. But if it doesn't happen, does that make my book any less good? Does that make my time having written it wasted? No and no. I wrote the book because I wanted to write the book because it was um, a calling that I had. I achieved that book. I pat myself on the back. And if the universe wants to uh, reward me with being listed on the New York Times bestsellers, great. If not, I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to worry so much about that outcome. My... um friend who puts on the retreats up in the cabin, she does an opening circle and she'll tell everybody to let go of what they want to get done and trust the process. It strikes me that that's a lot of the theme of the book is to trust the process. So if you go on your retreat time and you spend a chunk of it unexpectedly crying, the process was that you had some stuff you needed to clear out. And once you clear it out, you'll find that down the road, you're moving forward because you cleared that out. Can you talk about some of the things that unexpectedly happen to us on retreats that you let us know are completely normal? Oh, yeah. And that's absolutely normal. Um, so, yeah. And this is why I think people shy away from retreats because they do have that a vision they do or that um, impression that, oh, my gosh, if I go on this personal retreat, you know, all my skeletons are going to come out of the closet. Um, I'm going to have to face horrible things that happen to me or that I'm afraid will happen to me. And I don't want to go there. I encourage you to go there. And if these things are um, very traumatic, I encourage you to do that with a professional who can help you process that um, because that's important too. Um, it's important that you don't become re-traumatized from things that happen, but but it's also important that those things are processed so that you don't have that risk of being traumatized. But I have um, gone on retreats where I thought, oh, this is going to be really fun. I'm going to learn about myself and I'm going to have a good time. I Oh, sure, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to get through it. And you get there, and like you said, you're like, oh my gosh, you spend a day bawling your eyes out, or you're really upset, or you're angry, or or you don't know what's going on. You're feeling down, and you don't know why. And that all of these things have happened to me. And yes, it is all about the process. So part of retreating, so let's go back to that intention setting. Even though you set an intention, sometimes that intention doesn't manifest. And that is about letting go of the outcome. It's okay. Uh, setting the intention is good because it gives you guideposts, right? You have these guideposts. You have something to shoot for. You have a purpose. But when you go into retreat, sometimes you'll find that intention might change. 
maybe, you know, because I, I am a believer in the universe, whatever you want to call it, the higher power knows what's best for you. And, and we don't always know what's best for us, especially because we, and especially in uh, Western culture, we tend to ignore um, personal issues that we really need to address because there's such pressure to be the best, be number one, work hard, you know, you don't get what you want unless you work really hard. And I think we're too focused on, on the doing and the achieving rather than the being. And that's what retreating is all about is, is the being. And sometimes even if you do set an intention, you go into your retreat and yep, it turns out different just go with it. Let yourself go with it. Go on a crying jag, be upset, do whatever it is you need to do, but be conscious about it. And that is really the key about trusting the process is you're almost like you have to put on your third person observer glasses. So you're almost and, and being conscious of what's happening to you requires you to almost like remove yourself from yourself so you can observe yourself having this experience. It sounds kind of funky, but if you've been in that experience, you, you do know what I, what I mean. And, um, but it, watch yourself having that experience. That'll help you trust the process. And you may say, I have no idea why I'm bawling my eyes out. No idea whatsoever. Fine. That's okay. You don't have to know. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll figure it out later. Maybe you'll never figure it out. It doesn't matter. The point is to let yourself just do it because obviously something is in there that needs to come out and this is your way of processing pain, guilt, shame, whatever it is that you're harboring that needs to be processed. Let's talk about doing a retreat in our home. How do we set up a retreat space in our home? That's a really good question, and it's so easy to do, even if you share your home with a, with uh, one other person or a lot of other people. Um, I have the luxury of having a dedicated space where I can get away and, and retreat without being disturbed, um, but I realize not everybody does, and I didn't always have that, especially when I was a college student, and even um, even when I was out of college and I had housemates, uh, I owned my own house and I had to rent rooms in order to, to pay the mortgage. Uh, but I created a space in my bedroom that was, I had a chair and I sat in that chair specifically for the purpose of retreating. That was my me time space. I didn't do anything else in that chair. I didn't, um, I didn't sit in that chair and read, for example, unless it was inspirational reading that had to do with getting, um, you know, personal development. Uh, I didn't sit in that chair and talk on the phone. I didn't sit in that chair and get on the computer or watch television. I sat in that chair when it was time for me to think about me and what I needed to journal, to uh, process whatever I needed to process, um, and that's something that you can easily do at home. If, even if you have, even if you share uh, like a sleeping room with somebody, which I had done in college as well, you can ask that person to, um, you know, I need 
30 minutes, I need two hours, I need whatever time it is you want to need, and it has to be reasonable for both of you. Um, and ask that person or whoever you share your household with to respect that you need this time in your space. But I have in my book, I have some um, some tips for how to create your space, make it sacred. You can, you can section off a piece of a room with, um, you can build your own, um, uh, what are those called? The, um, like the screens, you know, that are hinged. You can, you can find stuff like that on FreeCycle or, or at, um, a Goodwill store or Craigslist or something like that, or make your own. As long as you dedicate some place in your living area that is only for the purpose of getting that me time. And then you can make it sacred by uh, maybe tacking a picture to the wall that's um, maybe a picture of a guru or maybe a picture of a of inspiring uh, landscape scene or inspiring words or things like that. You know, it depends on, all depends on the size of your space. I have a couple of candles in mine. I have some shells and some rocks that I've collected on trips that uh, where I've, um, you know, traveled around the world and really enjoyed my time. And, and I have those sacred objects that I found. Usually they're nature objects, acorns and leaves and, and things like that. Um, you can... You can also retreat outside of your home. And I find that this is also has its own benefits and that not only do you not have to worry about other people and just and being disturbed by people that you share your space, your living space with, but getting a change of scenery also keeps you from being distracted by the things that you're likely to be distracted by at home, like the television or the news or the laundry. You know, I got to do the laundry. I got to do the dishes. I got to cook a meal or whatever. And some of the places that I love to go and do a retreat are some of the nature reserves in my area. Well, there are art museums. I live outside of Washington, D.C. The National Gallery is a fantastic place to go do a retreat because there are so many it's such a huge building and there are so many places where you, where there are just, you know, there's a couch or a chair over in a corner and it's quiet, right? Nobody's, there's not a lot of noise going on in the gallery. Just go sit there and, and people aren't going to disturb you and you can, you know, hold, if, even if you're just going to sit there and do nothing, um, people aren't going to, people aren't going to um, disturb you. They're going to respect your space. But I like doing that out in nature too. You can go to a botanical garden or a forestry preserve or a park that um, is away from activities like, you know, sports and playgrounds and things like that. Those are places you can also create your space and you can make those sacred. I mean, they're sacred just by their very nature of being a nature spot or being a place of enjoying, you know, beauty and art and things like that. You also suggest um, having an accountability partner. Can you talk about what an accountability partner is and what they what they do? And if there's anything we don't want them to do, if you could give us don't do list too. Sure. I recommend finding somebody who can identify with you or re- at least at the very least respect your desire to get this me time. And that person can be a spouse, a partner, um, um, a family member, a close friend, 
maybe even maybe even a colleague at work or a professor or a you know fellow student anything like that and what they do is um, you can share to whatever extent you feel comfortable your desire to get this me time and maybe share with them also your intention. Say, you know, I'm really thinking about creating my own retreat. My life is really chaotic and I need to find a way to find some peace. And I've got this book that's teaching me how to do a solo retreat and I want to give it a try. And I also need some help with things. Can you help me set an intention? And, or, you know, that person can act as a sounding board. Is there anything that you think, you know, what's your opinion? You, you, you've observed me, you, you know me really well. What do you think, um, would be beneficial for me? And, and again, you're just asking for feedback and input. You don't have to accept what that person tells you because ultimately this is about you, but you can use that accountability, um, partner to just get feedback. You can also use them to keep you accountable to actually doing the retreat. So you can say, okay, this Saturday, I'm taking two hours out of my time and I'm going to do this retreat and I'm going to check in with you at some point after I come out of this retreat. Um, So, you know, I want you to give me encouragement to help me really do this. I'm I'm kind of afraid. I don't know what's going to happen. That accountability partner can give you encouragement, can be there to support you and say, you can do this, whatever it is they need to say to you to help encourage you to to go for it. And post-retreat, they can help you process some things if you feel comfortable sharing um, that came up during your retreat. So maybe, you know, you, you have, like, I, we'll go back to that example of your, you have to make a big decision in your life. Should I choose door number one, two, or three? And I'm going to go and retreat and just kind of, and think about this and look at my options. And, and then when you, when you, uh, are coming out of your retreat, you're processing that information, your accountability partner can also help you with feedback. Or you could say, you know, this funny saying popped into my head while I was retreating. And this is what this this um, voice in my head said, what do you think this means? I'm, I kind of think it means this, or, you know, they can just help you with all kinds of stuff. It has to be a person that you trust uh, with, you know, some intimate aspects of your life and that you know is going to be encouraging and supportive. The book has so much information in it. It includes a variety of retreat types, whether you want a group retreat or a solo one, home or away, two hours or multi-day. And you also include uh, tips for people who have children and they need to arrange childcare. And that may be um, reciprocity. You find a fellow student who's going to have the same needs and you take their child uh, this weekend and you set the time for the weekend. They'll take your child um, for a few hours and that way you each can set your own retreat and not have to pay for childcare. You encourage us not to strive for perfection and to work with what we have. One of the things I thought was really important that I want to, in the few minutes we have left, um, talk about is our troubled relationship with time. You have a section towards the end of the book where you ask us to stop saying that we don't have time and to really reconsider what our relationship is with time. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I can tell you that I have seen time as the enemy almost my entire life. I can remember being a, say a 10 year old and thinking, 
oh my gosh, in six years, I'm going to be 16. My life is going to be over because I I was a tomboy. So I was thinking, oh gosh, when I'm a 16-year-old girl, my life's going to be over because I'm going to have to act like a girl. I can't climb trees anymore. I can't play in the mud anymore. All these things that I loved doing, um, which of course, you know, I can laugh about now because it doesn't matter what your gender is, right? You just go do what moves your heart and soul. Um, But at the time, I was thinking, you know, life is over at 16, and I'm 58 now, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, to be 16 again and know what I know. So I had to reestablish my personal relationship with time. I had to stop thinking about time as the enemy, that the clock was ticking away, and I had to get all this stuff done because I've always had so many interests in life and there's so many things I want to do, so many places I want to go and things I want to learn and how am I going to fit all this into my life? And you know what? I'm probably not. In fact, I know I'm not going to fit all that into my life and that's okay. I have to pick which things are most important to me and that necessarily involves prioritizing what you want in your life in any given moment. So I talk about prioritizing and putting things into time boxes. So I made a pact with myself several years ago that I was never again going to say, I don't have time. Because I do have time. Time is not the enemy. And time is really what it's a manufactured, you know, man-made concept, really, when you, when you, think about it. So rather than saying I don't have time to do something, I reconsider, is this something that I really want to do? And where where in my time box can I put this thing that I want to do or accomplish or get involved in, whatever it is? And what can maybe be taken out of that time box, you know, because you have, say, say you have 12 hours in a day of time where you're, you know, you want to fit a certain amount of things into, and you have to, you have to put in your, your, um, things, you have to make time for your own personal survival things. Like, you know, I have to prepare meals. I have to sleep. I have to pick the kids up from school or whatever it is. So you just really have to get good at prioritizing and and tr- and making trade-offs and choosing what you are going to spend your time doing. And maybe it's not that, oh, I'm going to not um, belong to this nonprofit organization as a volunteer anymore, but it's, I'm going to reduce my hours to maybe one hour a week instead of five hours a week because I want to fit this other thing in now that I'm really interested in. So it's all about prioritizing, but I tell you my life changed when I stopped saying I don't have time because that gave away my power of controlling my own life. And if you want control over your own life, Stop saying you don't have time and learn how to prioritize instead. In the book, you give us a number of types of retreats we can do, whether it's a a treat to get out in nature or to learn meditation, to go away and learn a foreign language, to work on a creative writing project or an art project or a photography project, or just have time away from the noise so we can make a big decision. But overall, you let us know that purpose, really, if we can assign a purpose to retreat, is to get more confidence in our gut feelings. 
can we talk a little bit um, in the couple minutes we have left about how if we start to have an intention to do retreats, that whatever actual named outcome we can give, I went to Italy and I learned Italian for two months, or I went on this camping retreat and I worked on all my photography and finished my portfolio or whatever we actually set the intention for of that particular retreat. The thing that we're going to come back to is a reconnection with our own confidence and our gut feelings. Yes. And that's really where your 10 minute daily boosters come in. If you can take 10 minutes out of your day, first of all, let me say, if you can't take 10 minutes out of your day for your own self-care, you really need to look at your priorities because nothing else that you do in your life is going to be of much consequence if you yourself are suffering personally because you are not taking that time for self-care. Eventually, it will catch up to you, and we don't want that to happen. We want to be content and peaceful as much as possible throughout our lives. So really taking that 10 minutes a day will help to, to listen to your breathing, to listen to the thoughts running through your mind and without judgment and without having to do anything about it. You're just noticing thoughts like leaves on the surface of a river blowing through your mind, you know, passing through your mind. You get to know yourself better. You get to know your thoughts. You get to know your fears. You get to um, figure out how you're going to work out things that are troubling you. If you spend the time to do that, it will also boost your self-confidence because you will learn to listen. And your mind and your body knows what it needs and knows what it wants. And if you can stop the chatter, you know, the useless to-do lists and I should-haves and I could-haves and I must-dos, get that out of your mind and learn how to listen, you will also develop the self-confidence. You'll learn what it feels like in your gut when something is good or something is a no-go. It's, you know, it's not, I should do this or I shouldn't do that. Um, you know, this would be good for me or this wouldn't be good for me. It's really amazing. Um, you know, we have that innate ability already, but we have deadened it by all the chatter and noise and busyness in our lives. And if we can get back to that being, it will help us become the more confident person. My final question is, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I would really love for people to take away from this that you are important you are here for a purpose, whatever that purpose is. Make the most of your time during your life and make it as much about being content and doing good in the world as possible. And the way you can do that uh, is to understand that you are worth the self-care that you deserve. Thank you so much for being here today, Sarah Schneider, and telling us about your book, DIY Solo Retreats, a handbook for creating your space, setting an intention, and getting the self-care you deserve. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.